Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. We made it to 200 episodes. What a journey. Now, I've been regularly podcasting since 2019, and it's been an absolute whirlwind. Whilst this podcast obviously was initially focused on nutrition and and medicine, The conversations have spanned a wide range of topics, including happiness, motivation, purpose, and finding joy and meaning during life's inevitable struggles. I'm obsessed with food and flavor and how we connect with each other through the shared experience of eating. And I think it's because of this appreciation for connection as to why it's felt quite natural for me to cast the net wider when it comes to the conversations that I've had on this podcast. This part isn't just about nutritional medicine, although that is the foundation of what started it. It's become just as much about finding meaning and sparking joy. And it just so happens that we use food as the metaphor for this. And whilst I'll always have food to to focus on, I hope you as the listener will allow me to expand the conversations beyond the science of food to explore other elements of lifestyle that I feel are just as important from both a scientific lens and an emotional one. On today's episode, we've decided to go down some of the most impactful conversations I've had over the last couple of years. And we're starting off with Deepak Ravindran talking to us about how food as medicine has changed his practice and the concept of dualism in medicine as it relates to pain. Now remember, if you're interested in these kind of subjects, you will absolutely love my newsletter, the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter. Every single week, I send you a recipe, something to listen to, something to read, something to watch that will help you live a healthier, happier week. It sparks joy, it generates curiosity, and we have over 60,000 regular lit readers and listeners but readers for sure of the newsletter and i think you'll love that before we get started here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Coming from an Indian background um, myself, I got a lot of I told you so's from my family who are non-medical, right? So when I when uh, they were trying to suggest to me that uh, food and spices and all these different sort of uh, what I would have regarded back then as old wives tales uh, were important, I kind of brushed it off as like, you know, some woo-woo stuff. And, and now it's coming like full circle. Have you had those moments with your own family? It is. You know, even now, if I were to tell my father or if I tell someone, you know, I think you can think about an anti-inflammatory diet. You know, this is my nowadays in the last three, four years, ever since I've kind of got up and become this other person. I even my wife sometimes get irritated. No, no, this is not what I'm asking you what drug to take for pain. You can't tell me what to eat. <laughs> and, and I think my family back in India as well sometimes are a little bit more thoughtful when they now approach me saying, okay, I know you're going to tell me about sleep and I know you're going to tell me about stress. <laughs> but what I'm asking you is can, which tablet can I actually take? <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I don't think that's going to leave us for a little while there. In, uh, and uh, and I think that's the cross probably we'll have to bear uh, because that's how society has been brought up in terms, isn't it? That's our challenge we have to is to tell other members that there are options that are as safe and probably safer than what we've always done. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to circle back to some of the final parts in your book that I found actually the most um, useful from from my perspective as a as a physician. Um, but you talk a lot about um, certain philosophies from in the book. I mean, you, you talk about Descartes and the the entrance about um, this uh, the the impact of dualism on modern medicine. I wonder if we can just describe for folks what modern medicine is practiced based on like in the understanding and the separation of the body and mind and where that came from and, and how that's uh, that's cartesian in nature yes that, thank you i think that is a very very important underpinning and you're right it is a philosophy that we need to start moving away very quickly from so descartes was the french philosopher uh, mathematician philosopher really awesome all-round gentleman from the 1700s and he, at that time, was responsible for bringing on this theory. Now, at that time, the church was very much in favor of saying that the human body must not be touched on, must not be operated or because everything was one with God. And that was a very powerful philosophy and belief at that point of time. And Descartes came up with this approach and thought process that the mind is one with God, but the body is not necessarily one with God. And he also talked about his understanding of pain at that time. And this is this very classical picture that's there in almost every textbook around pain management that used to be taught about, where you had this little boy with a small fire that was burning near his foot. And Descartes' vision of how pain was, was that there would be a fire, there would be this rope that would stretch from the feet, it would go through 
the back of the, he got the spinal cord part right. So he's thought about this wire that stretches through, goes into, and he suggested that there was a small part in the back of the head, what he called as a pineal gland, which is where the signal stopped. And his understanding was that because pain traveled in that rope, you could cut that rope or you could take the body apart and find a way to either block, cut, numb that rope or wire and then put it back together again and there would be no pain because the mind is one with God but the body can be treated in this manner and that kind of Cartesian approach of the mind-body dualism was really advantageous because it allowed for the church to accept that as long as the mind is one with God the body could be operated on and that led to modern medicine really rising from there. You know, the fact that surgeons and other specialities could adopt that reductionistic approach of drilling down up to a cellular level, up to a genetic level to say what is a problem. And then the assumption was that it's a machine. So you could just put the component parts back together again and they would be fine. They would be same. And I think it was good because it allowed for a lot of advances that we see in modern medicine to be ready now. But it has also had its significant disadvantages and they are now in the last 30 to 50 years, we are beginning to know that that kind of separation is probably a flawed approach, which has led to a lot of over-medicalization maybe, because we are always stuck in the model of which structure is it that a particular pain is coming from without realizing what else could be contributing to it. And we've now come to a point wherein we've realized like there are things like social determinants of health. We realize what are the other factors like epigenetics, you know, what are the factors that trigger our genes? And those are environmental. And we realize that all of that also contribute to our health, to what is considered as a threat and to what is manifested as pain, that doesn't sit well with a Cartesian model or his reductionist approach. So I think we are in various pockets of society talking about moving away from this mind-body dualism, which is very artificial, which is flawed and leads to poor policy and decision-making. And it's time to probably firmly bury it and put it behind us and actually say the mind-body dualism is wrong, Now that we understand the neuroscience of how things happen and how pain is processed, we need to even firmly move away from there and look at the person as a whole in what I call as a trauma-informed manner. And that should be the way forward for modern healthcare itself. Yeah, I think think that's a, a great way to frame the rest of our discussion about how the traditional model of dualism is flawed uh, and uh, what the origins of that are. Just as a side note, I always wonder whether the Cartesian approach was really a workaround for Descartes to get around the, the, the church. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, I agree. You know, I think. <laughs> so, okay, you, you kept can everyone happy. Brain. You can have, you know, you can have the mind that's, you know, that's with God, but let, let me operate at least on the body. Uh, and, and that's influenced how we practice medicine ever since, you know, it's, I, I've always wondered that. I, I agree. And I think that is absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, the different kind of nail. <laughs> different kind of nail, yeah. Um, so before we, we talk about uh, pain, I think we should uh, talk about no, this concept of nociception or the, the, the uh, biochemical process of nociception and the interplay 
of intero and exteroception uh, on nociception as well because um, the definition of, of pain has recently been reclassified as well that you've written about in the book. So why don't we start there and then we can uh, branch off into other subjects. Absolutely. So um, I think the first things to start off is the definition of pain itself. So it has been a very cosmetic change in the definition that was proposed by the International Association or study of pain. You know, they did their first definition in 1979, and I think they've now revised their definition in 2020. There is very little change in the actual definition in terms of words, you know, just a mild cosmetic change. But what is most important uh, is their sort of what they call the supplementary notes. And they had about six points where they talk about it. And for me, the second point where they said that there is a difference between pain and nociception, which is very vital. And to me, I think that is a message which I've been trying to get out to the general public. And I hope your listeners, if I can explain it well today, will also take away because that I think is the core to what my book is based on. And that I think is enough. If people can accept and take that on board, that should give them the hope that there are so many other things that they can do for their pain than what they have been doing up to now. And what I mean is when you have an injury, when you have a fall, when you have a fracture, when you've broken some bone or you have a heart attack, there are chemicals that are released at those nerve endings which are closest to the site of injury. Those chemicals are released and then they travel in those set of nerves there. So there are no pain pathways. They travel in the same nerves that are sending every other signal as well from that part of the body. And those signals then travel up to the spinal cord where they then either get amplified or modified or dampened down. And then that remaining signal travels up to the brain. Now, the arrival of that signal, that is called a nociceptive signal. And that process of chemicals being generated and being transferred in these nerves up to the brain is what is called nociception. So that means nociception is only referring to that condition where you have chemicals being released in response to a, a stress, a threat. It can be a physical injury. And these days we realize that you can have that external, so you can have that uh, information coming from the external side, which is what is called exteroception. So when you see something that is frightening, when you feel something that's hot or injurious, when you have a chemical or a physical injury, then that all releases nociceptive signals. But when that signal reaches the brain, the brain then has to process that signal and, and, it, and it looks at it and what it has got, and that is the fantastic thing that we have realized now, is that the brain is actually a prediction machine. Now, it actually is almost the understanding of the brain in the last 10, 15 years is what's led to Google's Alexa and Siri and all of these fancy algorithms that sit in our kitchen doors and islands and it talks about what happens when that signal arrives it's already got a prediction model inside and it compares it to its previous experiences of having received such a signal the context in which that signal has arrived 
and then it has to decide in a microsecond does it have to institute a form of safety and protection or does it compare it to a previous model and say you know what this has already happened before it's nothing to be worried about it's not a uh, unsafe or dangerous thing and actually then the prediction model suggests that you don't have to do anything much and therefore no protection mechanisms register so all of that processing and prediction mechanism is done in a flash of a second and if the brain decides that it needs to protect you then that is when the experience of pain will arise so when somebody complains of pain the intensity and severity of pain is very much a function of how that signal has come how much protection the brain has decided it must provide and how it then institutes that protection so pain the experience of pain is then automatically different from nociception which is the signals that is coming through now in some people who have had a fracture where the injury is acute the nociception is significant and is almost the entire part of the pain experience but when you have chronic pain when you have pain that goes on for months and months when you've had a back problem that has been on there or a knee problem or a migraine or a irritable bowel then in those situations what we are now understanding is that there is the pain experience because the nervous system has stayed sensitive and it feels that it needs to constantly protect and that's where the chronic pain can persist from the amount of nociceptive signals may not be that much so i don't want to tell make your listeners feel you know often at this time when i say this people say are you saying it's in my head and and actually no it's not what i'm saying it's not that it's in your head there but the signal processing is happening within the spinal cord and the brain and they are unfortunately located in the skull so that's where the processing is happening but the signal is very real the indication is very genuine however at the end of the day somebody has to protect you and that patient needs protection and that brain if it thinks sometimes in error that protection is what is needed to be done because that's what it did the first time then that's the same model it will go back to and and that is why we need to understand that difference between pain and nociception because that nociceptive signals can respond very well to a drug or an injection but when you realize that often things are in combination or the pain experience is a lot more that's when uh, you have to bring in other ways of dampening the system down and probably the one thing that you were asking me was introception and extraception weren't you the last bit there so introception is when the signals actually can come from the inside so if you this is something that has been now understood in other fields as well you know they talk about it in uh, how the brain responds to information so everyone understands that the brain is receiving millions of bits of information but it can only act on a few things at a time and they talk about this kind of metaphorical gate or uh, a, some kind of a barrier at the base of the brain which either filters what information it should come through so 
interoception is that sum total of all the information that is coming from the inside of our body so for example only if i ask you to think about it now will you realize that your bottom sitting on the chair that your feet are on the ground otherwise this information is coming all the time uh, there's information coming from the intestine from the bugs from the microbiome all the time but the brain has to make that constant decision on which one it allows which one it does not allow in and those decisions on what it allows in is based on what it thinks it needs to protect you with and i think that sum total of the information from the inside is interoception and the sum total of the information that comes from the outside whether it's through touch through the five senses vision taste smell is exteroception Here's another one of my conversations with Professor Robert Thomas talking about toxic load as it applies to cancer risk. Also, we talk about how dietary nitrate, not to be mistaken for nitrites, can help improve health and lectins in food and whether we should worry about them or not. This is probably going to be a difficult question to answer, but do you think uh, obviously in combination with the other effects of sedentary lifestyle low vitamin D, poor diets, um, would that toxic load have an impact on lifestyle-related illnesses that we're seeing today? Um, yes. I mean, it, it, I, I think with the exception of um, dementia, which, which is mm-hmm. sort of going, going up, as you know, it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's, it's a very rapidly increasing disease, not just because people are getting older. Um, you know, I think if you've got toxins, I think they, they can directly affect the brain, even if you're healthy in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but for other diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, pancreatitis, I think there is clearly a balance. You know, you can, you, you know, you can you can get away with it. It's a bit like the barbecue story. You, you can get away with it. I mean, I probably drink a couple of glasses too 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 many on on a on a Friday evening. Um, you know, I, I have tried to convince myself it's just the resveratrol. But you know, there are lots of negatives in alcohol. Alcohol except is a toxin you know let's not fool ourselves um but you know it's a balance if you if you eat that with you know if you have a good meal with it um you know and then you go for a run the next day it's it's all about the balance you know it, and and getting the balance right rather than putting people in a you know in a sort of on a pedestal and criticizing every move move they take and i believe yeah. balance is it. and you know the same with sunbathing I, what there was a famous thing called slip, slap, slop in Australia to stop, get people to slip on a hat, slop on the sun cream. And I said, nobody mentioned food and or smoking. You know, if you smoke in the sun, you've got two lots of carcinogen damaging your sun. And it's been shown over and over again that that increases skin damage. On the other hand, if you drink a glass of red wine, eat some hummus and some olives, those counterbalance the direct damage from the sun. In fact, I saw a paper the other day saying um, something like dietary sunscreens, they're called. So, you know, if you're going to go in the sun, which we all enjoy, and it's good for you to a certain extent, you know, make sure you, you know, you have fruit and vegetables and herbs and spices that day. Yeah, I, I think I came across the same paper. It was like the equivalent of two cups of grapes or something like that in combination and it improved the, um, what's the word they use, phyto, 
protective effect photo protective yeah. effects uh yeah. in combination with with uh, skin block as well so that's super interesting and, and I, I agree with you we should also be talking about diet when it comes to skin too let's talk about um the foods that we should be embracing and specifically those plant nitrates that we were talking about earlier and, and what effect those might have versus the the nitrites that you you find in processed food yeah yeah um, yeah, I mean, everyone gets super confused about nitrates, nitrites, nitrous oxide, nitric oxide. Um, I mean, I was interviewed um, uh, about, well, there was a paper coming out about processed meats. And, and the, the journalist said, but you're, you're saying that nitrates are bad for you, but then nitrates are in plants. And, and yes, they are. Um, and I was trying to explain that um, when you have a nitrate in, in meat, you're having it with protein, and that's then converting to nitrous amines in the stomach, which is actually the carcinogen. Mm. But if you have uh, nitrates in plants, the polyphenols and the vitamin C in the plant converts that nitrates into nitric oxide, which actually is beneficial. It causes dilation of the blood pressure, brings your, bl- um, your blood pressure down, gives oxygenates your tissues. So it's, 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 again, the combination. And obviously, when you have it in meat, you've got other bad things in the meat, like uh, aromatic hydrocarbons. And if you've burnt it, you've got smoke. Or if it's smoked, you've got smoke directly. Um, so, yeah, nitrates aren't bad per se and you've just mentioned you know celery beetroot pomegranate uh these are those are particularly rich in in nitrate healthy nitrates uh so if you've got blood pressure problems or if you want to improve your sports performance those are the foods you should be taking yeah yeah i'm glad we clarified that difference because it's something i get asked about a lot as well and the the way you've explained it is um is is bang on um there's a lot of talk around uh, lectins, uh, phytic acid, and why they might be bad for you. Um, I, I, I probably get a couple of messages uh, two, three times a month actually about why am I using beans and lentils when aren't they meant to be anti-nutrients and removing thing, minerals from, you, from your um, body and, and how it's bad for you. C- can you speak a bit uh, on, the, on that topic? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of locked my way in my office for about two weekends to try to get my head around this because it, it is complicated. Mm. Um, I, I found out I was gluten intolerant, not a, not celiacs a, a few years ago, and and switching off uh, you know processed uh, bread, eating sourdough bread. I can now enjoy sourdough bread nicely. Um, uh, but then I noticed, um, and other people have noticed, that you know they were getting the same symptoms of bloating and tiredness if they weren't eating gluten, but they were eating like oats, which doesn't have mm. gluten in. And oats has, you know, like other grains and pulses, as we've just mentioned, has, has lectins and phytic acid, which actually people don't tend to talk about, but you get the same intolerance to those as well. And then you've got the paleo enthusiasts who uh, I... Um, and there's a place called Tarifa in Spain, which I love. I go windsurfing and kitesurfing there. And there's a there's a friend of mine there called Rowan, who's a, who's an enormous paleo enthusiast. So he's he's banned anything grains from his diet. Uh, and it's true, you know, if if you have an intolerance, it, it does give you a lift. Mm. Uh, but these foods, especially the grains, they actually contain, uh, you know, prebiotics which help gut health. Uh, and uh, the FODMAP people are saying, well, we shouldn't be having beans because it's, uh, it, will, it, it will cause gas. And it, 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 
and I've, I've figured it out, I think. Uh, you know, basically, if you have lots of beans and they're not used to them, and there's data to support, it's not just my opinion, you do get wind, <laughs> you know, you do get mm. bloating. So you instantly feel bad. If you've got a gut which is leaky, it's been exposed to gluten and phytic acid for years, so it's thin, it gets very sensitive. You only have to take one tiny bit of bread and suddenly you bloat up again. Mm. Um, but if you allow the gut to heal, so if you eat these beans and you eat lots of healthy bacteria-rich foods, eventually your gut starts healing. And you don't then get the gas and the bloating when you take the beans. So um, the FOD, what the FODMAP is doing is giving you an instant relief because you're not getting the wind and the bloating. But in the long term, my opinion is it's actually making it worse. Mm. So um, I don't know why there's such an enthusiasm for it. And the same with grains. As long as you're not, if, as long as you've got good gut health, otherwise introducing some grain, grain, grains and beans will actually in the long term improve your gut health. Um, so that, that's my my take on it. That uh, you know, don't be a paleo enthusiast and don't be a fodmat in, in enthusiast in the long term. In the long term, exactly. Yeah, and th th I'm glad we're talking about this because it's something I get asked about a lot, and I always pre-warn people that if they're going to start, you know, eating uh, chickpeas and beans and you know, whole grains, and their starting point from the from the start line is a quite processed, refined diet, you've got to go slow yeah, yeah. because you're going to know about it and everyone else is going to know about it as well in your vicinity. So you have to go very slow when starting uh, a new diet, any new diet really, yeah. or a new way of eating. Um, and, and otherwise you'll fall into that camp and you, you'll be led by certain advocates of different diets and say, well, you had these symptoms. If you take them away, this gets better. Ergo, you should follow this way for the rest of your life. And you know, we're all on a continuum when it comes to our... Well, we and it does work. You know, if you say to someone who's not used to beans and they've been taking beans and getting bloated and someone comes along and says, go on to the FODMAP, you're going to feel better a week mm -hmm. later, but you're not going to feel better six months later. One of my favourite people is... Mo Gaudat. He is a dear friend and a wonderful educator in the field of happiness. Having tragically lost his son unexpectedly, Mo dedicated his life to engineering happiness and figuring out what truly makes us happy. In this clip, he explains his understanding of life and death and how he applies that to his own loss. One of the things that I did want to ask you about, and I do want to go onto your podcast as well, because you've, you've had some incredible guests. I'm sure that they have Amazing. taught you and, and, you know, you've changed perhaps your opinions or perhaps, you know, solidified some of your beliefs before. But one thing I did want to touch on that perhaps we don't talk about enough, particularly in the West, is the, the, the concept of death and the, you know, considering, you know, uh, our current global situation, and, and this is a topic I think needs more attention, we have to get comfortable discussing death a lot more. And from your own experiences personally, but also your wealth of knowledge across different cultures and how they treat death and, re and respect death mm. as an inevitable mm. event in everyone's lives. Mm. What, what advice do you have for, for people and, and how do you decide to approach this sensitive topic? It is a very sensitive topic. And by the way, it's, you know, 
there is no amount of wisdom you can ever acquire to not feel the pain mm. and the fear. Huh? So, so I, I, I mean, I, I talk about happiness and I share what Ali taught me, but I'll, I'll tell you openly every, you know, three to four times a week, I will wake up with a hole in mm. my heart for missing him. Huh? It is, it's, it's just, you know, death is, it has a finality to it that is quite painful. But I, I want to talk about this topic from two sides. Uh, I, I hear that the UK has lost 100,000 people uh, to, to COVID-19 recently, you know, so far. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully not, not one single life more, but this is what we have so far. Uh, around the world, I think we lost somewhere around 2.6, 2.7 million. And, um, and I have to put things in perspective. And, I, and I, I hope, again, people are not offended by this. I'm, I'm 53 years of age, okay? So I was born in 1967. If I was born in the year 1900, by age 53, I would have witnessed World War I, uh, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, World War II, and uh, smallpox, okay? Between them combined, by age 53, the world would have lost 976 million people. Wow. 976 million people of a population that had not exceeded 1.7 billion at any point in that wow. period, okay? When you really think about it, that is like one of every two people you mm. know. Hmm? Now, if you put things in perspective, and, and, and COVID is nasty in so many ways, and it's nasty because it puts pressure on work, you know, health workers like you. Huh? And, and it actually, when, when my friends, when one of my friends got diagnosed, and he was saved by being in ICU, huh? the idea of let's make sure there are not too many people seeking ICU attention so that we, we cannot serve all of them and then we'll start losing them. That's noble in many ways. That basically means that by you staying at home and protecting yourself, you're actually saving lives, right? And, and that's a very noble idea to think about. Having said that, in comparison, COVID at the end of last year, I think was the eighth uh, uh, reason, uh, cause of death, okay? At a 10% of cardiac uh, disease, right? And we've survived as humanity with cardiac disease for hundreds of years. It doesn't take the same level of attention to talk about it, huh? uh, you know, and you could say, oh, no, 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 but it's not contagious. Yes, it is. With all of the stresses of life, it is contagious in a different way. Hmm? But at the same time, by the way, there were other causes that are respiratory diseases that are contagious that were higher on the causes of death last year hmm? uh, than actually COVID-19. The reason why we're all so worried about COVID-19 is because of the media attention and the political agenda around it, okay? And because it's a pandemic, it's something we don't know, so there is a lot of fear and anxiety and, and uncertainty. Hmm? If you really think about it, the extent of this, again, I, I, again, I please don't, I don't want to offend anyone, but in reality, if you just let go and say, yes, I'm going to stay home, I'm going to talk to my friends, I'm going to find a way to make my life better for a while, we will win. We won against the Spanish flu hmm, with nothing, zero technology. Mm -hmm. hmm? We won against smallpox. 300 million people died of smallpox, and we won hmm? with, with no technologies in the 1940s, 1950s. Hmm? We will absolutely win this one, but we need everyone to just do it right. Just please, please prioritize. Imagine if that person that you infected was your mother yeah. or your lover or your, your, or your sister and say, I don't want that for anyone. Hmm? And with that, stay home and try to make it happy and everything will be yeah. easy. You, uh, you, seriously. Now, let's talk about death itself. 
yeah, yeah. day before yesterday, I interviewed an incredible thinker, a cardiac, a cardiologist for 40 years who wrote about near-death experiences, an international bestseller, sold, I think, 300,000 copies of, of a book called Consciousness for Beyond Life, uh, Pim Fenlommel. Uh, and, and Pim spoke about the idea of the non-locality of, uh, of consciousness, that consciousness is not within us. Consciousness is, think about the internet. The internet is not on your iPhone, it's not on your smartphone. The internet is received by your smartphone, but it's everywhere, okay? And so is consciousness. Your life, your, your ability to perceive, hmm? your ability to, 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 to comprehend is not within the machine that's called your brain or your body. It's everywhere. This is just the receiver that enables you in this current physical form to receive all of this enormous, enormous consciousness. Now, when you really understand that, and I, I don't want to be too co complex in terms of physics and, and, and mathematics, but when you really understand at any level hmm, of simplicity, the basics of uh, space the space-time continuum and, uh, and, uh, and, and theory of relativity, you would understand that time actually does not exist as we perceive it to exist, okay? That, that all of space and all of time, that's, this is Einstein's yeah. work, huh? all of space and all of time exists in a four-dimensional loaf of bread-like uh, structure that is called space-time, okay? Which basically in physics, every physicist understands that there is no before or after. As a matter of fact, there are case studies that are proven by practical observations where your before could be different than my, it could, could be my after. Okay, so if, a, if an astronaut is approaching the Earth at a certain angle at a certain speed, they, can, they could actually see a world where the world they witness is my, my son being born in Dubai, in Egypt, okay? My son dying in, uh, in Dubai as the same moment. It actually would appear to them as a slice of space-time mm -hmm. that is the same moment. Now, when you think of that, you have to start realizing that because... When Ali Habibi left our world, Ali was very handsome. He was a beautiful, wise, white-shouldered, tall man hmm? who, uh, who would really have that glow to him, something about him, a charm to him. Actually, when he was younger, you know, in, in school years, every photograph of Ali is Ali in the middle and six girls from this side and six girls from the other side hugging right. him, right? He, he had that incredible energy to him. Habibi, when he left in the ICU, when he left our world, you looked at that body and it wasn't Ali. It looked like him. It had his features, but it wasn't him. And I know you know that because of your work. There is something mm -hmm. that animates that, that inanimate object that we call our body and makes it alive. And when that something disconnects with that body, hmm, that body is not you anymore. As a matter of fact, I carried him. I put him in his grave, Habibi. And, and he disappeared. That body completely disappeared. Did you understand that? What disappeared was not my son. Hmm? What disappeared was the vehicle my son used to navigate this world that is physical. But if you understand space-time, you would realize that the real Ali, the, ava the, the real um, player of the game that's holding the controller for that avatar that we called the physical form of Ali, the real player... Hmm? was not be born before me. 
he was not born he he didn't die before me he didn't he wasn't born he wasn't born after mm. me okay his physical form was born after me and died before my physical form but his real essence like my real essence was timeless yeah. it exists outside space time it exists outside this physical space that we live in and it just connects to that antenna like the iphone connects to the internet okay if you take any understanding of quantum physics whatsoever and you combine that hmm, with a simple understanding of uh, of uh, of the big bang theory you would have to imagine that life had to exist before matter yeah. life itself is what creates matter okay we're always alive death is not the opposite of life death is the opposite of birth you come into this physical form this level of the game if you want through a portal called birth and you leave this level of the game through a portal called life uh, called death and life exists before during and after now when you see it that way you realize that the only certainty i have honestly rupi is that one day i will be where yeah. i is i don't know what that is huh but i have no that i have more certainty of that than i have certainty that i will live another day and believe it or not just like my last 53 years passed so quickly my next i don't know how many will also pass hmm? the qu- the question is what will i make out of them death does not teach us to think to fear it death teaches us to live to live now now i can i can make this amazing until i go and play the next level but until i play and, and go and play the next level by the way i can guarantee you there is a next a next level as a matter of fact this level if you understand space time is so monix minuscule compared to the actual reality of timelessness next is a clip from my podcast with alexandra adams who is quite simply one of the most amazing and remarkable people that i've ever met alexandra is soon to be the uk's first deaf blind person to become a doctor she's an xgb athlete in both swimming and alpine skiing a published poet and a ted talker she's also a lifelong patient of the nhs having been in hospital for nearly 2 years as a teenager and having had tens of admissions to intensive care since the start of medical school the full episode will leave you inspired and determined to take on any challenges so if you're listening to this for the first time i highly highly recommend you go back to that episode that you can find on the doctorskitchen.com and listen to it in full and in the knowledge of what this amazing person has already achieved i hope it will allow you to feel a lot more grateful a lot more inspired a lot more motivated to tackle any of the obstacles that you might be facing right now How was your lunch? <laughs> it was amazing. It took me so long, but I obviously I just speak so long. And I, I've never had was... a guest that's enjoyed the lunch so much to the point where you dragged out the eating. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just enjoying saving every single bite. Honestly, it was pleasure so for good. someone who's cooked the food who enjoys, you know, pleasing other people through food. And uh, it's the best compliment. So thank you, thank you, Rupi. No, it's just it's just and for me, like I was saying earlier, being visually and hearing impaired, like. just eating food is just so 
it's 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 essential isn't it it's like literally to every mouthful you really like pay attention to what you're tasting what you're seeing what you're hearing what you're it's just oh it was beautiful it was divine because i I was i was quite surprised considering you've had so many operations on your gut and Mm. uh, you've had peg feeding you've had to have like you know a slow transition from liquid diet to something Mm. that a lot more with a lot more variety a lot of people would see eating as like a chore or something that brings back a lot of bad memories but Mm. not so for you i'm i was really desperate to get back to to a normal diet but obviously it was just not knowing how long it would take for the vagus nerve to to repair itself i mean i still struggle with some foods um and i do have an element of gastroparesis now but it's just it's just being mindful of how i eat when i eat what i eat but still being able to enjoy it um so i make sure that i have dinner fairly early so 5 30 rather than sort of late at night um and it's the whole sort of little more often rather than like huge meals um in one go but it doesn't mean that you can't you can't enjoy stuff i mean I really did not like Ensure drinks. They're just, oh gosh, nutritional drinks are disgusting. And I can just remember actually a few months ago, um, we had like a, a teaching session at the medical school and they were like, oh, does anyone want to try the Ensure drinks? Like they've got all these like variety of flavors and everyone was getting so excited. And there was me in my chair thinking, you have no idea. No idea, exactly. <laughs> and like when you have to tell your patient, oh, there's really, they're really yummy. Like, you know, I recommend this one. And I'm literally saying it through gritted teeth because actually they are the most revolting things i have ever tasted um so yeah and actually i do have a garage full of them just in case i have a bad flare-up or anything and then just like oh no they just yeah the stocks don't go down because i just avoid them at all costs yeah and for the listeners just describe a bit about gastroparesis and what that means for you so essentially it just means i could have i could eat a normal meal and then you know, I will be really sick, but it won't be sort of 20 minutes, an hour later. It will literally be seven or eight hours later. So as as gruesome as it sounds, I could be having chicken for lunch and then sort of at one o'clock the next morning, I could be vomiting amongst the chicken. And it doesn't happen all the time, but it's when I have bad flare-ups. Um, it's just, it's exhausting um, and it, it kind of makes you feel really giddy as well because your sugars go up and down. Like they really sort of... Yeah, it's and it's quite a challenge because when I'm on placement, you never know when you're going to have a good day or a bad day. Um, and then you're thinking, oh, you know, should I should I eat something or should I wait till I get back? Maybe I don't want to be ill this afternoon. So there's all these things that you have to take into account. Um, and sometimes it is really it's really bothersome, but it's just all a complication resulting from all the surgeries. And I've just had to accept that that's happened and just have to live with it really but like I said you know it doesn't stop me from enjoying food um, cooking eating and this is why I just think you're going to be the most incredible doctor when you eventually qualify in the next couple of years because you can identify so much with patient journeys you are clearly eloquent and smart enough to do the job and the day-to-day but people don't realize that medicine isn't about the ability to uh, suture up a laceration mm. or you know perform a surgery it's that emotional connection when you're sat in front of someone and you're trying to empathize yeah. and through you know your disastrous experiences you can uh, you can really do that to a level that most other doctors would never be able to mm, mm, and yeah. it's like seeing that sort of positive uh, aspect of your your journey over this time I just think 
it would be crazy of anyone to think that you couldn't be the the most incredible doctor, particularly as you're going to go into palliative uh, care. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, palliative care is, and you've really hit the nail on the head there because it is. It's one of those fields that it's all about giving empathy and actually sitting down with your patients and treating them as people. You know, working with their families and. I think having experienced being a patient so many times, I totally get, like, for me, I know what's important, um, what I expect from a doctor, and it's not necessarily, uh, you know, explain to me my blood test results mm. or this is what the scan shows. It's about sitting down and literally just taking a few extra minutes to treat me like anybody else. And it's that common sort of relation that you have with any other human being. Um and yeah, I do think that my personal experiences of, of being a patient has, has helped this. I mean, you know, I, I remember when I was in hospital for a year and a half, every single day I'd have these this big ward round of doctors come around and it was almost like the end of the bed was like this invisible line. Yeah. No one would cross this invisible line. No one would look up and they'd all look down at the notes and mumble amongst themselves and, and I would be in bed like, hello, you know, like what's going <laughs> yeah, on? Yeah. Um, and then they'd move on to the next patient yeah. and I was alone. I was isolated. I was scared. Um, and obviously being hearing impaired as well, that was another barrier in itself because I didn't want to sort of say, excuse me, I didn't hear, yeah. um, knowing that they're rushed off their feet as it is. But then there was this one junior doctor that came back and she just said three really important words to me and she just said, are you okay? And I burst into tears and I said no. And that was the first time someone had asked me that question in like six or seven months of me being in that bed. Wow. And um, and I said, no, I'm not okay. I'm, I'm really scared. I don't know what's going on. And she just got up and closed the curtains around. She said, I know how you feel. And she literally lifted up her blouse and she showed me this huge scar along her ribs. And turns out that this doctor had been in hospital for a long time at a similar age to me. So she knew what I was going through. But she also taught me that right now she was giving me empathy and that I would have tons of empathy to give to my future patients. And a few months ago, I was on a ward round. And again, we were I was at the very back because there's this supposed hierarchy as a medical yeah. student where you're at the very, very back. It's a weird um, hierarchy, isn't it? Because you, oh. you, you almost fall in line, like, okay, if yes. someone goes there and then the registrar is there and then you're there and then you're behind the computer Literally. and you're taking notes and you're running after them, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I was at the very back and um, couldn't really see or hear the patient, but I just had this, I can't describe it, but I just had this instinct, this like seventh sense of, you know, uh, this patient isn't happy, something's going on. But again, we were at the miserable line and, and no one's really looking up at the patient. And uh, and then we move on. And I'm thinking, oh. And at this point, actually, um, I decided to make my way to the very you know, front of the crowd. And I just said to the doctor who was leading the, the consultation, I just said, look, could you speak a little bit louder because I'm hearing impaired? And unfortunately, and this is one of many of the discriminations I've had, mm -hmm. um, just kind of looked at me up and down and going, hmm walked away and said to his colleague, how do you expect an invalid like her to run the NHS? Now, I heard that. I could have gone up to the doctor and said, excuse me, I, I heard what you said about me, but I chose not to. I stayed behind and I went back to the other patient that I just had this instinct about. Mm. And I went up to her and I just said, are you okay? And she burst into tears and she said, no, I'm not. And so I did exactly the same as what this junior doctor had done to me. Mm. I got up, I drew the curtains round and I just said, I know how you feel. 
because this patient had recently come down onto the ward from intensive care. Mm -hmm. And to date, I've had 17 admissions to intensive care as a patient. So 17. I yeah, 17. It's, it's crazy. I, I'm actually embarrassed at the number. It's, it's, it's quite bad. But, um, but yeah, it really, it was really satisfying to be able to tell this patient that it's all okay like I'm here right now and I'm I'm so much better than what I was um so eventually with time she will get to that stage too um and just to see her smile all it took was just a few more minutes just to say that and actually I realized at that point I didn't need any vision or hearing for that I didn't need any blood test results in front of me I didn't need any scans all I needed was to sit down and tell this patient that it was all going to be okay. And and I do, I say this, and this is my little tagline, but I might not have as much eyesight as most people, but I have more insight than many. And you're so right in saying that it is, it's empathy. Empathy is really, really important mm. in medicine. Mm. I think most people see medicine and it's very, very reductionist and naive to think that what we do as doctors is dole out pills or mm. perform surgery or mm. do some other sort of intervention that involves something physical or reading a, a lab result. The majority of what I do, and this extends to A&E as well, is have meaningful conversations where you establish rapport and you try and get to the uh, sometimes emotional distress as well as the physical distress. Mm -hmm. And to do that as a doctor requires empathy. And if you've ever been a patient, which you've obviously uh, been a patient for a long time and you've had a lot of uh, traumatous experiences. I've had that experience as well and I had my own heart issues and stuff. You you understand the vulnerability and how embarrassing it is yeah. to be a patient, to be yeah. at the end of the bed. I, I've told this story before on the podcast, but one of the most... Um, eye-opening experiences for me wasn't being hooked up to the cardiac uh, monitor, wasn't having all the investigations. It was simply uh, being wheeled from the cardiac unit to the x-ray department mm. to have my chest x-ray mm. uh, through the corridor in the middle of the day. Mm. And I was in my pajamas, I had the porter, I had the nurse with me who had to transport me with the cardiac monitor. And people weren't looking at me. It wasn't like I was being stared at. Yeah. But I felt like I was oh, being yeah. stared at. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And that will never, ever leave me because mm. I know what it's like to be in the bed at that time. Mm. And if you can if you can tap into that as a as anything, as a health professional, uh, you will become a, an incredible medical practitioner mm. because you understand at a, at a much deeper level what really medicine involves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it makes you it makes you realize that you are so vulnerable mm. as a patient and you you can't exactly do anything about it because you can't just get up and, mm. and go places. You you are kind of you're almost relying on everybody else around you to do things for you when mm. you're so not used to that. Mm. Um and I totally when you when you said that going in the corridor and in the bed in your pajamas, I I totally empathize and actually I have been in the hospital as a patient a lot where I'm a medical student. So I see my colleagues as who then become my doctors, my medical student friends become the medical students who are taking my history. And, and honestly, sometimes it can be so, oh, just mm. it is, it's embarrassing, but it exposes you to the real world. And I mean, I guess this again sounds a bit gross, but I remember in one of my ICU admissions, I was literally... 
I was really delirious, um, but it was kind of the, the phase where I was gradually coming out of the delirium. Mm. So I was vaguely aware of what was going around me. Mm. Um, but I can remember just having awful, awful runs, awful runs. And they just said, just go. And I just remember lying in the bed and literally just the, the feeling of feces coming all the way up to mm. like, you know, my chest. Mm. And honestly, if I was with it, yeah. I would be absolutely yeah. dying with embarrassment. But honestly, I was so ill. I just didn't care. But listening back to that, it's just, oh, it was, yeah. I but it imagine. makes you realise that, you know, when a patient goes, well, I really don't want to use a commode, I don't want to use a bedpan, I totally get why. Yeah. I totally understand. Rather than, oh, don't be silly, you know, yeah. it's, it's fine. 100%. You need to be able to sit down and say, look, I've had this really embarrassing experience. I mean, back when I was a patient on for that year and a mm. half, I can remember, I was bedridden for most of the time, mm. um, but I can remember before having an epidural in, I um, was put onto a commode and I literally had nothing on, not even a gown. For, for the listeners, a commode is like a portable toilet. Yes, so the, it's basically, the, yes, yeah. and it's got like a, it's like a chair almost and you just sit on it and, mm-hmm. and they take the, 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 the box away. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I had nothing on and the nurse had forgotten to put the brakes on. Oh, no. And so I was literally so weak at this point, I literally heaved myself into this commode and out I go. Oh, no. <laughs> wheeling into the middle of the corridor. <laughs> I mean, I was on a surgical ward, but at the time, like four out of the five patients had dementia. So I really hope that they don't literally remember what they were. They won't remember, but, yeah. um, <laughs> but for me, with the doctor seeing through the window and everything, and as a young 16-year-old girl, yeah. I couldn't have been so more embarrassed, honestly. it was um, Alexander, the number of stories you've got, honestly. Like, <laughs> we still need to go back to the Tanzania story as well. But oh, like, but you, just, you just pull out all these stories again and again. And like, just, I've been like... You know, we're in good humour, chatting to you about this for the last couple of hours now. I just can't believe how many you've got. It's yeah, it's crazy. It's honestly. Howlers. Where do you want me to start? I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, with Tanzania, it was because that was my oh, first ever. Okay. That was <laughs> that was my first ever trip. I mean, I was saying to you earlier over dinner that I, you know, before I went to this blind school, I was literally so dependent on my my parents and I didn't have any confidence I wouldn't go anywhere on my own wouldn't even take the bus and then within my first year of going to this school I was gallivanting around the world on my own um but oh my goodness Tanzania was was so funny so as I was explaining now I excuse the visrude I'm so sorry but I was on placement and and the doctors were amazing they really they really tried to get me involved, you know, despite my disabilities. And they would go, oh, Alexandra, come over and do this and come over and do that. And I had a week in internal medicine and a week in surgery. And I was in surgery and the, the doctor came up to me and said, oh, Alexandra, do you want to come over and do this circumcision? Now, at the age of that, then I had never heard of the word circumcision before because I'm quite a naive person yeah. at this point. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, really want to get involved. Like a team medical student. Yeah, yeah, Literally. And I, yeah. And um, so they scrubbed me up and put me in my gown and put my mask on. And then I realised evidently what I was about to do. And I was like oh okay um and for this i think this patient um was having a recurrent infection uh-huh. so it was for, for medical purpose yeah. and um so yeah he literally the doctor you know told me what to do but the funny thing was was that 
the other students who were doing the procedures in the other room were doing it at arm's width like any other surgeon would. But me being visually impaired, I was literally like an inch away. (laughs) And this poor patient was only under local anaesthetic. (laughs) So he was completely aware that there was this blind, untrained, not even medical student at this point, operating on his penis. (laughs) And I was just like... Mumbo. I kept putting my thumbs up and I felt so bad for him. But you know, it was so funny because I was genuinely convinced that this doctor would be like, no, you can't do this. You're visually impaired. But he encouraged me. In fact, he said I had a really steady hand and he told me to come back and do the other patient's procedures. And I was like, oh my goodness. So anyway, the story continues. I I went away um, on a safari weekend, um, you know, just to kind of like wind down off a of placement. And on the, the side of the safari park where you know, there are cottages where we're all staying and the cottages are each named after an animal local to that area. And knowing my luck, my cottage was called Dick Dick Cottage. (laughs) And honestly, I told you this was rude. (laughs) I had no idea what a Dick Dick was. So obviously I went around asking what it was. And apparently it's this kind of... um, it's kind of like a like a kangaroo. It's a, it's an animal right. that, that jumps, and you know I'd never heard of it before. And I thought, oh great! And anyway, had a fantastic weekend. And you know, fast forward to home, I had to I couldn't take the bus with everyone else, and it was a nine hour drive to the airport um, because my flight was at a funny time. So the program manager had offered to take me personally in his car to the airport and I thought oh my goodness that's so kind of you. And his three other brothers were also going to the airport. But it wasn't until it was like four hours in that I realised that I was in the back of a jeep in the middle of a desert with four men I didn't really know. Yeah. Um, but it, it was fine. It was fine. And then we um, and then we we stopped and we were literally in the middle of nowhere. And one of the brothers in the front he got out and he was just facing you know the horizon, sort of back to me, sort mm. of thing. And um, obviously he was having a. A toilet break. Okay, yeah. But be, me being visually impaired, I, I couldn't quite see that. Um, so I thought he was admiring the view. So I go, what a lovely view. <laughs> and then the brothers look at me like, you're a bit weird. Like, anyway, so I'm just looking around, completely oblivious whilst this the guy's on his toilet break, literally within my full vision yeah. you know, of what I had. And um, anyway, so I saw a few zebra sort of like potter around. And then, because for me, I can only see shapes um, from a distance. Uh-huh. I saw this thing like jumping up and down in the background. And I said, oh, look, it's a dick dick. <laughs> whilst he was on his toilet break, <laughs> honestly. And they literally must have thought I was so rude. <laughs> And then I needed a toilet break, and me being like a sensor, I'm so sorry. And the stories just carry on. And I'm so gullible. I'm so naive. And literally, I was like, "When we get to the next service station, can can I please stop so I can go to the toilet?" And they said, "Yeah, sure." They don't have service stations in Tanzania, literally. And um, so it was another four hours until we stopped and we stopped in this like lorry park uh-huh. it was not like you know the usual toilets you expect in sort of the western world mm. and anyway they dropped me off and they pointed me to, to where the toilets were and there was literally this this hole in the floor and there wasn't even a door mm. to sort of shield you it's literally just kind of like a a barred gate if you like 
and anyway, I'm I'm sort of getting used to this whole crouching down thing. Yeah. But honestly, it was so hard to relax, and yeah. I was desperate for yeah. the toilet. And I wasn't I wasn't wearing a skirt, which is probably the most inconvenient of things. So anyway, I'm I'm squatting for at least five minutes. Come, come on, come on! I just need to go. I'm desperate. Please relax. And then just as just about as I was going to go. The guy, the driver, called, Alexandra, are you okay in there? And literally lost my nerve altogether and literally wet myself. And oh it no. went everywhere. Oh <laughs> and I had to waddle out back into this lorry park in front of all these people with a clearly very dark patch, like oh no. soaking through my trousers. And I had to sit in that, that the poor guy's car for like oh another God. few hours. So I eventually got on the plane unscathed. But oh my yes. goodness, it was... <laughs> In this episode, Professor Felice Jacker, who should take a huge amount of recognition for bringing to light the impact of nutrition on psychiatric conditions with her colleagues at the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University in Australia, we talk about her reservations around the ketogenic diet and the impact of our guts on our brain, plus nutraceuticals for mental health. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I've come across some studies that a keto diet is the equivalent to having a round of antibiotics in terms of what it does to your microbiota. Yeah. So that's something to always bear Oh, look, and I just came across a new study, and I don't know how I missed it because it was published a few months ago mm. now, but it was published in Oslo. It's a really important study. When you look at the ketogenic diet and the, the health, you know, what people are purporting it does to, to, to reduce um, blood glucose and all of those sorts of things, we really don't know whether that's just because people have lost weight and you get a lot of these health benefits in the short term when you lose weight. This study in Oslo, it took uh, more than 30 young adults, healthy adults in the healthy weight range. So they were really healthy, they were nice and slim, doing all the right things, and they put them on a keto diet for three weeks. Now, what happened to their blood lipids is just extraordinary, particularly because there was such pronounced variation. So they all got exactly the same food, but LDL cholesterol increased between 5% up to 107%. Oh, wow. So in some people, it just went off the yeah. scale. Mm. Even more concerning, there were two really quite serious adverse events. 
myo um, myocardiopathy. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then an autoimmune thyroiditis. Oh, Is interesting. that right? How yes, you say yeah, it? autoimmune yeah. thyroiditis. Yeah. Two yeah. young, healthy people within yeah. three weeks. In fact, that happened really quickly, within a week or so. Yeah, you can almost understand why that might happen as well, because if you're giving an insult to your gut microbiota and that's mm. inherently involved in your immune regulation, and you have a patient that has a propensity toward autoimmune uh, disease because of a genetic predisposition, then you're essentially lighting the fire yeah. uh, with a keto diet. That's right. And it just blows my mind that people are advocating this as a sort of diet that cures cancer yeah, and, and, you know, the yeah. whole works. It's it's really, I think, unethical because mm. at this point we do not have the data to say that this is a safe thing. Some people may respond really well to it, mm. but others are not going to respond well. And what this study showed was that um, some people experienced a really massive increase in their LDL cholesterol, mm. which we know is a profound risk factor yeah. for uh, heart problems mm. no matter what the the conspiracy theorists yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the diet gurus say there's so many things that i wanted to chat to you about regarding the immune system and meta-inflammation we touched on inflammation um earlier when we were cooking um but i think you've got a really nice analogy for explaining what inflammation is and what meta-inflammation or low-grade chronic inflammation is and how that relates to to mental health yeah well i mean based on what we know and i'm not an immunologist um you know, if you if you have an injury or a severe virus, your immune system springs into action. And the little messengers that are part of that whole immune response, these proteins are called cytokines. And I mean, there's a whole lot of different ones. And basically, they run around and make sure that things happen and that you get healed, hopefully, if your immune system's working well. But what you don't want is this those cytokines hanging around over the long term. But what we know is that there are a lot of things in our Western life that really prompt this low-grade inflammation, this systemic inflammation where these cytokines, it's like your immune system is on low-grade alert all the time. And they're things like not having enough sleep and sedentary behaviours and smoking and lack of vitamin D and stress and all of these things. But, of course, diet is a really big part of it. We know that a healthy diet that's high in plant foods and whole grains, etc., cetera, um, prompts a reduction in inflammation. Then we know Western diets increase inflammation. But, of course, inflammation doesn't just happen in your body. It happens in your brain yeah. as well. Well, this um, is a relatively new recognition, right, that yeah. inflammation of the cytokines can cross the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I'm not an immunologist, so I don't want to go into too much detail there, but there's um, all sorts of new knowledge coming out of the field that I think is really interesting. Um, but basically, you know, the driver of all of this, so we, we know about the immune system and its role in prompting depression. And we know this from a whole number of different studies and different ways of coming at the research. And we know that brain plasticity is involved in mental health and that diet influences mental health. But what we now know is that the gut and the microbiota that live in the gut play a key role in all of those things so they're very it's very very important it's like the heart of your immune system yeah. your gut uh, it also influences the health of your brain the integrity of your blood brain barrier your brain plasticity all of these things um, as well as your body weight and your metabolism etc now it's a very new area and it has to be said that most of what we know comes from animal studies so we have to be careful in extrapolating too much and we're also really struggling with the methodologies. You know, like, what does this mean? Just because there's a bacteria in there, like, what is that good? Is it bad? Yeah. 
And then we're finding out that bacteria can do all sorts of different things and sometimes they can be baddies or goodies depending yeah. on who else is in the zoo and, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, how they're yeah. working together. So it's horribly complicated. But there are some basics that we're pretty sure about. Mm. And um, the first thing is that the gut bacteria, their primary role is to break down dietary fibre. Mm. So the dietary fibre that your human enzymes can't break down that's their job and they break down the dietary fiber so that's just in the things like the beans and legumes and plant foods and um whole grain all the stuff we're just eating and when they do that they produce a whole range of what are called metabolites many many different ones and we're only just starting to figure out uh, about some of them the short chain fatty acids have been looked at quite extensively Short-chain fatty acids interact with pretty much every cell in your body through these G-protein-coupled receptors, and they influence how your genes behave. Um, They are very important in the immune system and the health of your gut lining. It should have a nice thick mucosal layer. That's really important in uh, having good immune health. There's many things that can break down that layer, and then you get this what's called metabolic endotoxemia, where you get... Um, these pro-inflammatory things getting out of the gut and into the bloodstream. Um, but the gut bacteria do so many things. They synthesize vitamins. They synthesize neurotransmitters. They also prompt the synthesis of neurotransmitters. And we don't know that those neurotransmitters actually get into the brain. We do know that more than 90% of serotonin is actually produced in the gut, but it may not cross the blood-brain barrier. But those neurotransmitters do signal to the brain via the vagus nerve, the gut-brain axis. But the bacteria also control how much serotonin is produced by uh, the metabolism of tryptophan, and they're in charge of that. So there's a whole lot of different ways by which we think uh, the gut bacteria interact with the brain and behavior and we're just starting to really do the studies in humans to try and unpick all of that. But it's very new. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, a lot of people kind of jump the gun with a few things that mm. you probably mentioned, right? So tryptophan, uh, specific types of uh, dietary fibers, and a lot of spin-off supplementation yeah. sort of, uh, practices have, have come about. You were just telling me before the pod about how you were just at a recent conference and you came across some really interesting research looking at which supplements or nutraceuticals may have benefit and which don't. And, and you were saying this pretty pretty thin evidence really yeah yeah yeah. so um colleagues of mine have done uh, just recently a a, a mega analysis which Mm -hmm. is like a meta-analysis of all the (laughs) meta-analyses so it basically brings together everything we know from randomized control trials about the impact of supplements nutritional Mm. supplements in psychiatry and pretty much the the evidence is pretty limited Um, EPA, which is part of the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids like fish oil, seems to be helpful for people with clinical depression if they have high levels of inflammation, which is about half of people with clinical depression. So EPA, yes, tick, but again, short-term, not long-term, short-term. Methylfolate, it's a form of folate that has some pretty good evidence. And again, it's during the acute phase. It's when people are depressed. And what happens, of course, when you have many different sorts of medical conditions, but including depression, your immune system is activated. So you have more inflammation. And what that inflammation does is it kind of burns up your nutrients yeah. in a way. You get this sequestration of nutrients and you, you, your nutrient levels drop and you also get oxidative stress. And that interferes with the, um, the long chain omega-3 fatty acids in the brain cells because they make up an important part of the brain, of the neuronal wall. 
So that's why I think the EPA seems to be useful because it can bring that back and same with the folate. Mm. Um, there's some evidence for something called NAC, N-acetylcysteine, okay. mm. which is a we precursor. That medicine. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. And I think, again, it's something that's short-term. I think it, it, it has some evidence for efficacy in mm. schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I wouldn't be taking it over the long term. Right, okay. Um, I think that it uh, can break down the mucosal layer. I'm not mm. sure, but that's oh, what I've read. And uh-huh. um, What's the mechanism by which an anesthetocystine might be working? I don't do know. I okay. don't know. Yeah. I'd need to look into it further. But um, in emergency, we use it for uh, paracetamol overdose. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. And it's great for that in a short term. Yeah, short term. term. Yeah. But yeah, it's not right. something that... Uh, I would be taking long-term. Gotcha. And this is the thing. When you take a supplement, you're not taking it with all the other cofactors and things that you should be this consuming. Thing, yeah. I don't take supplements. I don't mm. actually trust them. Mm. Ever since I found out that uh, antioxidant supplements, so vitamin C or vitamin E, yeah. you take them before exercise yeah. and you lose a whole lot of the benefits of exercise because yeah. it interferes with this whole really complex processes. Yeah. I remember coming across that actually uh, because vitamin C, particularly amongst the um, sort of physio or the um, personal training community, has been thought of like a no-brainer after exercise because it's yeah. an anti-inflammatory. But what you're doing is blunting the benefits of exercise which lead to ultimately shearing of your muscles and inflammation. And it's that, it's that little bit of low-grade inflammation that actually leads to resilience of the body over That's time. Right. Um, it's almost like the plant hormetic effect. I'm fascinated yeah. by this theory of like, you know, a little Hormesis. bit of bad is yeah, 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 good yeah. for you in the long run. Um, so that's interesting. So no vitamin yeah. C or vitamin I don't. I mean, I'll take, take a bit of vitamin D in winter time, yeah. but I do try and get it from the sun if I can, and I'm Australian, so yeah, I get lucky. to do that. <laughs> uh, we, are, we have recommendations to take vitamin D3 now um, in the winter months, but uh, as you've experienced our summer in June, it, yeah, it's yeah. not always uh, sunny over here. So, yeah, I think vitamin D is pretty pretty important for, for people in the UK. Um, yeah. But yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's about the only thing yeah. that I take. I just don't. I've never taken supplements. Yeah. Probiotics, you know, there's the evidence is pretty mixed, and I yeah. would much rather be getting uh, fermented foods into yes. me. Yeah. And I think fermented foods is really interesting because they've been part of traditional diets forever. There's a lot of misunderstandings about fermented foods. So, t- say if you took kombucha, for example, fermented tea, and people will say, "Oh, but all the bacteria are dead because they've eaten all of the the sugar substrate." They've um, and now they've died off because they don't have anything else to eat. So there's no point taking it. Well, actually, that's not how it works. So what happens is during the fermentation process, those bacteria are producing all of these metabolites. So many they're called biogenics, and they are they're multitudinous, and we don't even know what most of them do. But um, we also know that the bacteria can still have bioactive effects even if they're dead. So I think fermented foods are great for a whole range of reasons. We're really keen to test them in clinical trials, yeah. and that's something we're working on at the moment. Mm. And also, they're just delicious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I just love. I, I make my own kefir. Yeah. And I love kombucha. I have it yeah. every day. And do you have your own like? So you make your own kefir at home with it? Yeah, yeah, own, with like, the, the grains. Uh, so simple, so cheap. Yeah. And just so tasty. And then I make smoothies with the kefir. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. My husband not so keen. Yeah, but really. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get him there. Yeah, I've heard of this term uh, banded around actually called psychobiotic. Um, which are yeah. um, probiotics that potentially have the impact or can have the impact yeah. on, on mood. But I think that you're right. It's a fascinating area of research, very, very much in its infancy at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the moment, it's just probiotic foods. 
Yeah, and uh, there is some really interesting data, though. There was a fantastic study Bob Yoken's group um, published probably about six months ago where they they took, and this is, to me, the most compelling study so far in psychiatry, patients with bipolar disorder, like serious bipolar disorder, who had been hospitalised with mania. When they came out of hospital, they were randomly assigned to get either probiotics or placebo. And then they were followed over time to see how long it would take for them to go back into hospital with mania. And there was a really big difference. The ones on the probiotics took a lot longer to go back into hospital. Gotcha. So that's very cool. But the psychobiotics, so Professor John Cryan yes, and yeah, Ted Denant, Ireland, right? great yeah, yeah. buddies of mine, and oh, they're really yeah. the world experts, yeah. you know, and they've got a great book called Psychobiotics, yeah. which is all about this. Um, but they would say, look, at 99% of the bacteria, that, the strains that they've tested in animal models don't do diddly squat. Mm, yeah. But there are some but that are. are some, yeah. And I, I do think that there's probably huge potential there. Mm. It's just that we're not there yet. And going and getting some probiotics off the shelf and yeah. consuming them is probably not particularly worthwhile unless maybe you've if you've had antibiotics it's certainly not going to hurt exactly but yeah. i would be getting the kefir and the exactly, butcher yeah. and the tempeh and the sauerkraut and everything yeah. else into me it's something i actually tell patients whenever i give antibiotics so look there's no evidence behind a probiotic supplement it's unlikely to do any harm i'd prefer you get it from probiotic foods um, but we're just not there yet and there's so many different variations as well right i mean depending on your genetics your current state of your microbiota whether you're dysbiotic or not um it's 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 almost like the keto diet for some people it's great for other people absolutely deadly yeah. um and potentiates in some cases autoimmune conditions yeah. which you talk about in your book as well yeah. which i was i was quite pleased to to read about um and also uh, there was a study that you um, you mentioned. It was something that I, I wrote an essay on recently. I think it was O'Keefe and colleagues, and they did a crossover study um, where they took people who were still living in Africa and South Africa. Oh, I think it's it was one of my favourite studies. It's a fantastic one. study. It's just yeah. amazing. And then they crossed over the diet with uh, Africa people of African origin who were living in America and yeah. therefore eating a Western diet. And yeah. They crossed them over for two weeks, and they found profound changes right yeah that's right so um you know we know that people who are living more traditional lifestyles have a much healthier gut microbiome more diversity more short chain fatty acids all of the stuff and they compared south africans living a rural traditional lifestyle to african americans having the sad the Mm. standard american diet (laughs) and of course their gut looked really kind of awful and had higher levels of inflammation and these markers that we know risk factors for um bowel cancer Mm. But that was the cool thing. They swapped their diets for two weeks and the poor rural South Africans, their, you know, their gut health went down the toilet, yeah. so to speak, and yeah. the inflammatory markers went up, but it got better in the African-Americans. That's so powerful. That's saying in two weeks you can have profound changes on your, in your health mm. by just changing what you're feeding your gut microbes absolutely yeah. yeah it's incredible that and so to to sum i don't because there's so much information packed in your book i mean you talk about uh dairy gluten specific diets you, you even put the details of the modi diet that you put in um that you use in the smiles trial if we were to categorize what things that we need to be doing for mental health um what sort of things so we talked about whole grains and, and fiber mm-hmm. um which we we had in our lunch today yeah. um what other things are you looking at and, and fatty fatty fish um yeah. uh, supplement or potential supplements but. look i think it's really important to understand that you don't have to get this perfectly yeah. right and you know i go very much for the 80 20 rule in australia uh average like teenagers are having on average seven serves of junk food a day 
seven serves. Wow. Less than half a percent of Australian children and adolescents are getting the recommended intake of veggies and legumes. Less than 5% of adults. In America, something like 60% of their average energy intake is coming from ultra-processed foods. So this is not just a problem of people who are poor or uneducated. Mm. It is a massive, on a global scale. So if you moved your diet to be 80% pretty good, you know, you would be doing so much better than the vast majority of the population. And then that still allows for, you know, I love ice cream. Friday night, ice cream time. (laughs) Um, You know, I like chocolate. Uh, You know, I'm not super, super strict and it's not prescriptive. You've got to give me an ice cream recommendation for Melbourne. I, I know Melbourne's like a hotbed for new restaurants. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, Messina. Messi- yeah, yeah, so we have a Messina. Yeah, we, we have a Messina, a bunch of Messinas in Sydney. Yeah. Did it originate in Melbourne or Sydney? No, actually, okay, not well, sure. But I also enough. love. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. No, there's many, especially yeah. around the Carlton, yeah. <laughs> around the Italian area. Yeah. So much good gelati. I know I love ice cream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you know, eighty percent of your your diet, you're just going for whole foods, and mm. it doesn't have to be that difficult or complicated. You know, porridge for breakfast, mm. yay. Yeah. You know, mm. a bit of Greek yogurt with some oats on top and whatever, yay. Yeah. Um, lunch like we had today, just you know, good quality sourdough bread. Mm. Um, Rivitas, whatever. Mm, mm. The sorts of recommendations we gave in the Smiles trial were dead simple. They were like a, you know, Rivita type biscuit uh, and a tin of tuna and some sliced salad. Yeah. Bang yeah. it on. That's yeah. it's cheap. It's easy. It's quick. Yeah. Um, I use and for that simple diet to have that dramatic effect. Yeah, over three it, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. So you introduce fiber. Fiber mm. is key. That is number one. Polyphenols, mm. you know, come in all the colourful fruits and vegetables. They yeah. seem to be really powerful. Mm. There's some really interesting studies showing that if you get rodents and you put half of them on a high-fat diet and the rest on a normal diet, the ones who are getting the high-fat diet, of course, they get really fat. Yeah. And they put on lots of weight. But if you take a third group and you give them that high-fat diet, but you also give them polyphenols in the form of, you know, blueberry supplementation or whatever, they only put on half as much weight. Wow. So it's the only thing that's different yeah. and it mitigates weight gain. So you've got to look after your gut. Yeah. Your gut, And I think that makes it easier for people. They get told that they should eat their fruits and veggies, yeah. but they don't really know why. And they think, oh, well, maybe one day I'll have a heart attack. But that's yeah. off in the future. Yeah. But and if often you say, people reduce like the berries, for example, just to its uh, polyphenolic components, yeah. so the flavanols and stuff like that. But actually, you know, it's the fiber. It's all the other parts. All the other things the that we haven't even started to measure exactly. yet. This is what's so mm. powerful about plants. Mm. Um, but just this knowledge that if you feed your gut, you're going to be doing good and you don't need to know mm. the detail of which bacterial strain is doing what. You just need to know that your gut bugs need fibre to mm. do what they do. If you don't have enough fibre, they can't do what they do. You just need to know that lots of different types of fibre and different types of plant food help lots of different t- types of bugs to live there. Yeah. It's like a zoo. You want this real biodiversity in yeah. your gut. My husband and I have just uh, written a kid's book. Oh, have you? Yes. Another book? Yeah, and it's called, <laughs> it's called There's a Zoo in My Poo. <laughs> and the idea is that we want to get kids actually going, I'm the zookeeper. Yeah. I'm in charge of these guys. I've yeah. got to look after them. Yeah. And that means I've got to feed them the right things. And I think that's true for adults as well. That yeah. It's making it very concrete like that. It's yeah. going to be really powerful. That's brilliant. And actually, you can buy the book, There is a Zoo in My Poo for Your Kids, right now. Finally, my conversation with Rahul was super powerful. Dr. Rahul is a neurosurgeon and author of the book, 
life lessons from a brain surgeon. And our conversation spanned the need for mind wandering and the importance of harnessing creativity, but in our own unique ways. Even the way you talk in terms of like your mind wandering and you know, the fact that you speak a second language and all these, these are all like concepts that come out in your book. And it's kind of just, your book is just like a structured way for you to express yourself. And there are benefits to this, right? There are yeah. benefits to, to daydreaming. Uh, there are benefits to um, using your left hand. I, I must admit something. I've actually started using my left hand to text on my yeah. phone. I actually use my phone now. Um, it's something I started a few years ago, but then uh, I rapidly just forgot about it. And then once I read your book again, I was like, okay, now I'm going to do that again because that is actually harnessing those new neural connections, right? Right, absolutely. And just in a more fundamental way, yeah. you don't want to have arthritis just in your right hand, right? <laughs> you, you want to, you've got a lot of phone mileage to go. I don't plan yeah. to put my phone away. Yeah. So it's. Uh... Yeah, and arthritis will start in your thumbs as well. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I, I was talking to somebody. And not knowing these things or sharing these things in an overly simplistic way has maybe made us not see our real potential. Mm. Children, you're this type of personality. You're left brain. It, mm. it, it, it closes us. Yeah. You know, it, um, it puts us in a rut. And, and the key to get out of that rut is inside us, but nobody has explained to us that that is possible. Mm. So in the book, we have... Um, extreme examples to show you what I call your top speed. Mm. It's up to you if you want to get out of first yeah. gear. I'm not here to yeah. be preachy and yeah. say, uh, do this. and do, I'm, not, I'm not that guy. Yeah, I just, you don't sound puritanical at all. Yeah, I'm actually told, <laughs> I was talking to somebody the other day, I, I want to be allowed to do things that are dangerous or hurtful to myself. I just don't want to be misinformed about them. If I want to have a cigarette, I just wanted to know and have known from decades past that it was dangerous. Mm -hmm. If you want to play American football, we didn't do our generation a favor by lying to them mm -hmm. that it was just like boxing. Yeah. But we knew, if you go into boxing, everybody knew for the 100 years, well, you get punched drunk and there's dementia pigilist. There are all these words that say you bang your head against the wall or fist too much. It's going to mess up that delicate jellyfish. And so we knew that. And then if you choose it, that's fine. Mm. I, I, I love free will and freedom. Mm. I just don't like misinformation. Mm. So I just want to let people know, for example, on creativity, um, some patients with dementia, when their frontal lobe withers, the CEO, the boss, the things behind our forehead, there, there's two of them. It's a paired brain. It's a left and a right. Mm. With this bridge. When that wears out, they can have dramatic improvements in their ability to paint. <laughs> What are you talking about, right? <laughs> that, now, I'm not saying get dementia to be, I'm not saying, but that should make people say that is there, so there's something that was tamped down. Yeah. Then you have these case reports of people being hit with lightning and they can do math. Yeah. And then you have, you know, savants who, you know, might have an intellectual disability. And that's in America, that's how we refer in the most respectful way. Yes. So if it isn't here, I just want to qualify that yeah, for yeah, listeners. That's, yeah. that's my most respectful and articulate and nuanced way to to talk about that because I do take care of those patients. They can have certain mathematical abilities released. So if the homeostasis in our brains is tilted, and it might be not good for you, but there are hidden talents and latent abilities inside us. That is the premise now. Mm. Then we talk about, well, well, I'd like to tap into those on my daily life. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to tap into those if I work for Google or if I'm here in London. 
and then the book goes into what are the things that people can do. So I, I love the topic of creativity. I know four people that are wildly creative. Four types of people. Actually, five. Kids. Yeah. Kids are kids, stuff. Kids. Yeah. And guess what? Their frontal lobe is not fully developed. So that that's quite interesting, isn't it? The fact that your frontal lobe isn't fully developed, and this is where you harness those sorts of um, the, the imagination, right? Mm. The um, the sort of creativity element. Yeah, you give them a box, and they will have a whale of a time. Like I'm, I'm watching my two godsons who are in America at the moment, and just the things they come up with, and how happy they are, and content they are. That's so. Let me answer that conundrum. The frontal lobe is not developed, and the frontal lobe is also the seat of creativity, mm. but. It's the part of the frontal lobe, I don't mean anatomically, the capacity of the frontal lobe, I don't mean like corner X, uh -huh. to uh, squash down creativity, to be able to go to school, check your emails, uh, get on the tube and check, right. uh, the checklist part mm -hmm. of the CEO component of our frontal lobes hasn't hit maturation. Mm -hmm. We can also lose that part by getting drunk. Yeah. I'm not saying get drunk, <laughs> but that's what alcohol does, it disinhibits. Mm -hmm. So the inhibition capacity, not location, of the frontal lobe isn't there. So creativity is having its way as a kid. Um, some writers like to drink and, and they feel they write better. Then we're also uh, microdosing. People feel like they're more creative. Again, that disrupts the frontal lobe from saying, I got to check my emails. I got to get home. I gotta, oh, my God, I got bills. I got to all. And it should do that because... You don't want to be walking around the park only being creative. You have, you know, you have to achieve the goals of the day to to live, to eat. Uh, and then the fourth person that has is wildly creative, or people with dementia again, frontal lobe is now physically injured. And then what I would posit is, so so we know that creativity is it, it, there's greater creativity than we deliver because the homeostasis is tamping it down. Okay, because we've got these examples, but we're all wildly creative in our dreams, and. Um, I love that term you use, by the way, in the book, where um, we are all dollies of creativity when we sleep. Yeah. It's incredible. Like, we are, though, right? Yeah. Wild stuff. Going yeah, it's right? Whether we remember or not. Yeah, yeah. And so then I was writing this chapter on creativity. I just like, you know, I, I, yes, mind wandering is helpful. Yes, getting out, walking around is helpful, being playful. But I just didn't feel like that was nuanced and sophisticated enough for, yeah. for everybody. Yeah. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed listening to these conversations. I can't wait to share another 200 with you all. I have tons of ideas of podcasts on specific health topics, all with the aim of helping you live your best life. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Please rate and share it with your friends if you found this episode or any episode in the past impactful. And I will see you here next time.